I think they want some stability at the head coaching level. And, and so I think that gives a, an advantage to, say, Dabo Swinney or Nick Saban, of course. I mean, there's some people in Alabama that have told me that that wasn't by accident that Nick Saban just announced that contract extension right here before his, his visit coming up with Arch Manning. I mean, um, I, I think stability at the head coach spot. Now, you know – the coordinator level, you're going to have coordinators come and go. I don't think that's as important uh, to the Mannings as it is at, at the top level, and I think that gives certain schools an advantage over others that are just kind of getting started with a, a new regime. Hey, what's going on? This is the Saturday Down South podcast. I am Connor O'Gara awesome pod today. We've got the Athletics' Jeff Duncan coming up in a bit. He wrote a piece last month on Arch Manning's recruitment. He has some rare insights from Arch himself, plus Cooper and Archie, uh, as well as the thing that Peyton told him when he first wanted to do the story back in the day. Um, as you'll find out, Jeff has a little bit of you know uh, some background with the Manning family, which was kind of what allowed him to do the story in the first place. So definitely going to want to stay around for that. We've also got the top five college football fan bases I pity. So we'll have a little bit of fun with that. And then we've got figuring it out to close things out. But first, I wanted to do some brief 12-team playoff cleanup. When we recorded last week, Will, we, we didn't know yet what it would look like with the auto bids and all that stuff. And the proposed model that Bill Hancock discussed would actually feature t- four the, the top four seeds from the highest ranked conference champs. So basically those would be the teams that would get the the buys in the first round. And while there wouldn't necessarily be the automatic bids for conferences, the field would include the sixth highest ranked conference champs. Basically the goal is, hey, we don't want a case like last year where Oregon would have made it into the field just by winning the Pac-12, even though they were unranked at the time of the Pac-12 championship with multiple losses. You get it. If you were an SEC fan wondering how that would ever potentially hurt the league, I went back and looked at all the SEC champions of the 21st century. Actually, no, all of them, just in general. And let's just say this. The SEC champ is not getting left out of a 12-team field. And if you need any realization of why that's the case, there are only two instances in the history of the SEC championship, which of course dates back to 1992, in which the winner of the game came into it ranked outside of the top seven. 2005 Georgia was number 13, and then 2001 LSU was number 21 in the AP poll. LSU, of course, won that game. They stunned number three Tennessee, who had just beaten Spurrier in his last game coaching Florida in the swamp. They had the weird 9-11 reschedule. We did that game for it just meant more. And three-loss LSU jumped to number 13 in the BCS rankings after that. LSU still would have been the sixth highest-ranked conference champ. So even that situation is protected. This whole, like, six highest-ranked conference champs is basically to protect against, like, the 7-5 and five team from the Coastal doesn't somehow knock off Clemson and then suddenly demand a playoff berth. We're not going to have those, which I, I like that. I think that's good. As I said last week, automatic bids for every conference championship has negatives if we're talking about an A-team field because with the A-team field, I think that you look at 75% of those bids being automatic qualifiers and it's like, oh, that's, that's too much because we know, as we've said, it's not an opinion, it's factual, it's unbiased to say that not all conferences are created equal. I saw some people saying, well, that means Notre Dame 
they got to join a conference now because how messed up is that this system, this 12-team playoff that's being proposed? They put a ceiling on the Irish and they say that they can't do better than a five seed. I totally disagree with that. Totally. If this system has home games in the round of 12, Notre Dame can theoretically host a playoff game, which would be a massive selling point. And instead of getting on the playoff stage and facing Alabama or Clemson, and then having everyone tell you how overrated you are, you would get a favorable matchup against a team with either multiple losses at the Power 5 level or some Group of 5 conference champ. The idea that Notre Dame is now going to bail on its independent status which will return in 2021 after the brief 2020 year in the ACC. And, and that to think that it's just now going to join a conference so that maybe it can get that first round by, th that's an absurd thought to me, especially considering that they're saying the quarterfinal games are going to be played at bowl sites instead of home games for the top four seats. That brings me to my other point that I wanted to clean up here. I've seen a lot of people saying, well, you've got to make the Bulls happy, but at the same time, it's not fair that those top four teams don't also get the benefit of a home playoff game. And I think I have the solution here. Top four seats can stay as is. They, they get those buys. Four highest ranked conference champs, they get those buys. That's all well and good. But give the top two seeds home playoff games in the quarterfinals. And then three and four play at bowl sites. So you incentivize that one, two seed even more. That makes the don't devalue the regular season crowd happy. That way you also make those big bowl games who have been very much a partner with these college football teams. It makes them happy as well. So you would have the 8-9 winner would be at the number one seed. The 7-10 winner would be at the number two seed. And then 6-11 winner versus the number three seed at a New Year's Six Bowl site, 5-12 winner against the number four seed at a New Year's Six Bowl site, you get it. And then both semifinal games would be at New Year's Six Bowl sites. So four of the six big bowls are part of that. And you could rotate kind of in order which that would go, quarterfinal, then semifinal. And it's, it's easy to be able to rotate that. Only two of the big bowls would get left out. I don't think a first round playoff loser would wanna play in another game after that. I saw that being thrown out. That, that was kind of surprising to me. I, I was like, you really think that after getting knocked out of the playoff, they're gonna be like, oh, well now do we get a bowl game? I, I don't think that's a thing. I don't think kids are going to be on board for that. Who so, wants that? Yeah, like, I don't even think coaches would want that. That's weird. Like, they just want to get on to recruiting and go about their lives. Like, no one's like, all right, right boys, we got this poinsettia bowl we got to worry about. Yeah, that, how's, how would that be able to, how would you show up for practice after that? I know we make the jokes all the time about, oh, which SEC team is motivated to be able to go to bowl games. Imagine getting knocked out in the playoff and then being told, yeah, you're going to go to San Diego to play in this random bowl game. Treat it like it actually matters. No way. That's not happening. Um, so if you had those big bowls there with four of six being involved in the playoff, two of those bowls then would get like the top four teams who are left out of the playoff. So they would, and that game would be separate from the, those games would be separate from the playoff, obviously. But basically, two out of every three years, your big bowl game is part of the playoff. And that's better than what it currently is in this system where you have one playoff game if you're a big bowl, and then two years away in a non-playoff New Year's Six. So that's just spitballing. And I may or may not shoot a message over my guys to the Peach Bowl and be like, hey, if you haven't already thought of this, I know what's going to make everyone happy. You should totally do this, Gary Stoken. Will, what are your thoughts on on that and maybe just some of the some of the things that you've seen kind of said about the 12-team the model? Yeah, I think... Um, <clears throat> 
anyone thinking that Notre Dame is going to be hurt by college football, I guess, hasn't been watching college football very long. Because one thing I'll tell you about college football, they'll find a way to make their own seed for Notre Dame. Like, they'll be like, oh, wow, we got a, we got a suddenly an independent uh, seed. It's either going to be Navy or Notre Dame every year. It's just going to be... BYU. Yeah, exactly. It's going to be the three seed that's just open for Notre Dame. So, yeah, I don't think that they're going to be pressured into doing anything. And then, yeah, exactly what you said about, like, you know, if you're an SEC team, it's a blessing and a curse uh, in that if you make that SEC championship game and you win that... I don't care who you are, you know, you should be in. If you found a way to navigate the SEC schedule, finish first in your division, and then beat whatever horrifying team is coming out of the other division, I, I don't think that, you know, any SEC team is going to be sitting here wondering. And I think that, like you said, that could be the case in another conference because, yeah, if you're – I can't even use last year with Oregon as an example. It's such a strange year. Um, but, yeah, like – I. The guys who are going to be arguing for their teams that are ranked, you know, from 12 to 15, like I said, I just don't really have any sympathy. That's not going to be an SEC team. And mm -hmm. if they are, they're an SEC team coming off of like an Alabama win or something where it's like, all right, we want to see this team. They might be getting hot at the right time. Exactly. If one of those Florida McIlwain teams who got to Atlanta when the division was down, if that team had beaten Alabama, which, you know, they played them more competitively in year one than year two, if that had theoretically happened, we'd be like, all right, this team can actually hang. This team just beat Alabama, and, and it would totally change the perception. And the mm -hmm. SEC is at least always going to have one of those teams in the SEC championship. So that's why it's very well protected, obviously, and we've talked about that a lot. But I think that there are a lot of positives to go around with the 12-team playoff, and there are still some things that they can do to continue to incentivize the regular season, i.e. give those top two seeds overall a potential home playoff game in the quarterfinal and still make those big bowls happen. Today's podcast is brought to you by the Saturday Football Newsletter. If you haven't gotten around to signing up for the Saturday Football Newsletter, I'm giving you permission to pause, take two minutes, go do it right now. Might not even take you two minutes, probably won't take you two minutes if you're actually one of those people that doesn't like, you know, you got the fat thumbs and you're, you know, you're bad at typing, whatever it is. It's probably taking you one minute to be able to, to sign up for the Saturday Football Newsletter. All you do, you go to your web browser, you type Saturday.football. That's it. No .com needed. You put in your email address and boom, for no cost at all, you're going to be getting the key headlines and nuggets to stay on top of college football throughout the offseason. And then, you know, you keep it during the season as well and you become an even more college football fan. It's only twice a week until things really get ramped up. So we're not going to be like one of those department stores where you accidentally hit the button for the email receipt and then they send you three, mails, three emails a day about all their deals and stuff. And you always mean to hit the unsubscribe button, but it's really hard to find or you do that and then they still somehow keep sending you those emails even though you're like hey guy enough I bought a Henley one time like just give me some space I don't need this in my life Saturday football newsletter is not that at all I promise but you might be saying isn't it that boring time of year can't I just wait to do that until fall I suppose you can but why wouldn't you want to be a smarter college football fan this very minute stay informed with the Saturday football newsletter again go to saturday.football put your email address in and I promise you'll be glad you did Okay, when I saw the clip of Arch Manning rocking the Texas jersey, and he's throwing passes in Austin at that camp that they had, you know, it was probably what like a top three moment for Texas in the last five years. It's got to be up there. I mean, I, I would tend to think with some of the the way that like you know Texas has gone viral for various things and usually not the best things. And it's that Sam Ellinger clip saying, we're back every single time that they lose a game to Kansas State. And you're just like, wow, this is really sad that Texas is at that point. I thought about 
for maybe a brief second, do I feel bad for Texas fans? Never. But then I thought about, and Will, I bet you'll agree with this. Horns down is just so fun. Oh yeah. And it's one of the single best clapbacks you can possibly give in-game trolling, whatever the case may be. And I hate how uptight Texas gets about somebody doing that. Texas reacts to horns down like I'd react to someone making an offensive joke about my wife or or, or mother, probably. Like, like, whoa, 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 you crossed a line, buddy. Meanwhile, Tom Herman had no problem trolling Drew Locke and his celebration or yep. flipping the bird to a live TV camera because Tom Herman was basically a 13-year-old kid. So even though I like Sark... No, I do not pity Texas fans. Here's who else I do not pity. Did your team have a massive sexual assault scandal within the football program and then try and cover it up in the last decade? Um, sorry, fans of Baylor, Penn State, Michigan State, and now LSU. You're not going to get any pity from me. Did your team win a ton of games and reach the pinnacle of the sport this century, but now times are a bit tougher? Sorry, Florida State, USC, and I suppose Texas once again, because Texas has a national championship this century, you won't get any pity from me either. Let's just throw Michigan in there. I, I know Michigan doesn't have a national championship this century. That's been well documented. I also don't pity Michigan fans because have you ever noticed that when you see a Michigan grad out in the wild, they're wearing at least two forms of Michigan apparel. At least two, seriously. Next time you see a Michigan fan out there in the world, You'll be like, oh my gosh, you're exactly right. Another, yeah, the, only, the only cool guy with that vibe was Tim the Toolman Taylor. And even then, you're like, <laughs> do you need that much Michigan gear? A hat will do. A sweatshirt will do. You go to a game, it's a different story. But I remember being on a tour in the Grand Canyon. And I look at this guy and I said to Lauren, I'm like, what school do you think he went to? Michigan hat, Michigan shirt. I think he was wearing Michigan shoes or Michigan socks as well. Like, we, we get it, guy. We get it. We, we fully understand you're a Michigan man. Another type of thing that I don't pity. A fan base who doesn't seem to care as much. That can be a tricky thing to navigate. I get that because it's like, no, I don't expect Vandy to have a packed house every week because if you're at a university that blatantly says that they're, tre they're treating academics and sports equally and that's why you, you haven't had a major stadium renovation since the early 80s, your options are limited. I get that. It sucks that you have to endure that if you're a Vandy fan, but I don't pity you because it's like, well, what do you really expect? I'll never pity Northwestern fans either, even though some of my earliest memories of college football are sitting in the bleachers as a five-year-old at what was then called Dyke Stadium. They have since changed the name to Ryan Field. It doesn't make a difference that you've got one of like the 10 or 12 best coaches in the sport, in my opinion. Will, we don't need to get into another Pat Fitzgerald <laughs> argument again. We don't. That's that's in the past. We can move beyond that. Northwestern fans still don't show up because there are better things to do on a fall Saturday in the Chicagoland area. And Miami kind of falls into that camp a little bit as well. They have their diehards. There's no doubt about that. A guy that I used to intern with back in the day um, when I was um, working with the Indianapolis Indians, he's a Miami grad and I'm pretty sure this guy has never taken a picture in his entire life without throwing up the U every single time but Miami like Chicago a lot to do that's why in 2019 Purdue and BYU were among the teams with better home attendance than Miami Purdue and Oof. BYU yeah that's a tough look to be able to sell that you really care about your team if I pity your fans it doesn't mean that I root for your team 
as you know, I've said many times in this podcast, I don't root for teams, I root for people. I root for people that I know and like. It makes this job a lot easier. If I pity your fans, it means I feel obligated to you know, lend my shoulder to cry on when that inevitable heartbreak comes. I feel a calling to maybe you know send that text that reads, on the bright side, at least 85% of this year's production is expected to come back. <laughs> Man, I love you, but never ever send me that text message. <laughs> I won't. I won't. It's tough, but I feel the calling to do that. And you know, I might make the occasional joke or two. After all, I'm in the content business. I can't have the kid gloves on all the time. Sometimes they're on, not all the time. But these are the five fan bases that I truly find myself pitying right now. Let's start with Tennessee. I know what some of you might be thinking. Didn't I exclude the fan bases who had a lot of success this century and have since fallen on hard times? There's a key caveat there, this century. Tennessee has as many SEC titles this century as will you and I. Zip, zero, nada. This October will mark the 15 year anniversary since Tennessee last beat a team ranked in the top 10 of the AP poll. 15 years. There are probably juniors at Tennessee who were too young to remember the last time the Vols beat a top 10 team. 37 consecutive losses to top 10 teams. Even Vandy has a win against a top 10 team during that stretch. In the last 10 seasons, Tennessee, of course, three and 27 against its biggest rivals. Also 12 consecutive losses. Only one of those games was decided by single digits. And of course it was the Felipe Franks Hail Mary back in 2017. Yep. I know, look, look, I know a lot of people listening to this and Will, you might be listening to this thinking the same exact thing. I know you're thinking Tennessee fans, they're nuts. The fact that they got a coach fired before he started is a wild thought. And the groomers, they kind of make Tennessee fans seem a little bit more like your crazy uncle than like your best friend going through a breakup. But I'll say this, at least they care. Imagine getting kicked in the teeth like that. And in 2019, they were in the top 10 in attendance. They're always in the top 10 in attendance. For those saying, oh, there's nothing to do in Tennessee, of course they're gonna be there. BS, man, Tennessee is beautiful. I could find new places to hike, have a beer, or see a concert every weekend. So yes, there's some delusion with Tennessee fans, not denying that. And they're an easy team to poke fun at because who does Tennessee really have bragging rights against these days? The Vols are even 5-5 five and five against Vandy in the last 10 meetings. It's that bad. Every coach is going to be the savior. Even though the last four coaches couldn't beat a top 10 team or play a meaningful game in November, I remember doing the adjustment more for the, the Georgia State game, and we did it because it was a viewer's choice. That's how easy it was to pick on Tennessee. But then I rewatched that game, and you see all the sad orange Orange the is sad a tough, orange. Oh, <laughs> Such well, a orange. bright color. Hard to wear that shamefully. That's a really good point. Orange is, I don't know if it's the toughest color to look sad in, but it's up there. Let me tell you, that's like top two, top three color to look really, really sad in. Surrender Cobra looks infinitely worse in Tennessee orange than it does in black or blue or crimson or something like that. It just does. Every time I see that meme of the, the sad Tennessee fans, from I think it was the 2001 SEC Championship, if I'm not mistaken. Um, I, I get sad thinking of that, with the exception of like when Tennessee fires its coach, that's 
basically how it's been for the last 15 years. Like that's, that's this constant state of just sad depression. And I think to myself, if college football fans were just all like Tennessee fans, would the sport be more entertaining? Undoubtedly, yes. So therefore, they have my pity. Will, any this, thoughts on that? I'd say this on them real quick. They're the only ones. And like, I don't, I don't really have any animosity towards Tennessee fans whatsoever. I feel like they're a little bit different on this list because I know exactly how they would be if they were good, and I don't look forward to that. Mm. Mm. So it's like, and, and, and just a comparison to me with Georgia fans. Now, lots of people have different experiences with Georgia fans. I know Florida fans would vehemently disagree with me here. Me, personally, as someone who doesn't really have a, a history with either team, I know Tennessee fans would find me to talk to me about them if they were good, whereas I feel like Georgia fans just want to be mean to the people around them and show them they were wrong. I, uh, I saw this shirt that really like encapsulated that. It said, uh, we've been baseball relevant for five minutes, but we've been a-holes for decades. And I appreciate that. I think that it's cool, but at the same time, I can't really feel sorry for them because I know that if the roles were reversed, they would not feel sorry for me. That's fair. It's why they get my pity right now. If they were to start winning and those things were to come out and you would see them, I think that would change things, of course, but nobody's holding their breath on that at this point. <laughs> Nebraska. I almost put Nebraska and Tennessee on the same line there because the similarities are there, whether either fan base wants to admit it or not. The loyalty of the fans, uh, Nebraska has the, the, nation's, the nation's longest sellout streak, of course. Uh, that's if we're not including 2020. There's some murky stuff with that. But it dates back to 1962 in normal years. But I didn't join Nebraska with Tennessee because it's a touch different. A touch different. You could say, how could you ever feel bad for Nebraska fans when they got to experience all of that winning? And it's really like it, it bears repeating because it's it's still ridiculous to think about some of this stuff. They were ranked in the top 25 for all 25 years of the Tom Osborne era. Rather, they finished in the top 25 all 25 years of the Tom Osborne era. They had a 21-year stretch under Devaney and Osborne in which they never finished worse than 12 in the AP poll. Alabama's current streak is at 13 years. So basically, picture this situation. Picture Bama being at that level through the 2020s, where it's nothing but top 12 finishes, and then Alabama would become the team of the decade in the 2030s. Because after Nebraska's top 12 finish streak ended in 1990, they then became the team of the decade in the 90s. Three national titles in the four-year stretch. So how could I ever feel bad for Nebraska fans? You could argue that no college football fan base was as spoiled. And if you're like a 55-year-old Nebraska fan, basically if you're like a boomer Nebraska fan, you're set. But a couple of things. I always try and think about this in terms of my age because I think I'm kind of in that average age for a college sports fan. For the most part, I mean, I'm 31. Um, and I have a lot of Nebraska friends who are my age because as I've said, I spent two and a half years out there uh, after college, if you're 31 like I am, you were in first and second grade for that dynasty. So that's essentially like what the Bulls were to me for MJ. But the majority of your life from 2002 to 2020, that's from ages 12 to 30. In that stretch, Nebraska, zero top 10 finishes, zero conference titles, zero BCS slash New Year's Six Bowls. And yet, you can't go anywhere in Nebraska without escaping 
talk about the glory years. I think I've told this story before, but if you haven't heard it, here it goes, because this kind of puts some of this in this this pity into perspective. One time I was in Lincoln covering, I think it was state high school basketball or something like that. Afterwards, we go out for, for a beer in the Haymarket, which if you haven't ever been to Lincoln or don't know what the Haymarket is, really cool downtown. It's really been built up in the last like 10 years or so. So anyway, I go into this bar and on the big screen, big, big projection screen in this specific bar, it's a replay of the 95 Fiesta Bowl as in 62-24 beat down to Florida. Spurrier rubbed his visorless head probably a million times that game, if you go back and watch it. And I, I look around at basically how are people reacting to this and people are locked in. I mean like, the, you would have thought this game was live. It was unbelievable. I, I thought to myself in that moment, this is really, really sad, but this is all they have. They don't have professional sports in Nebraska. This is it. They have one division one school. It's Nebraska. That's it. It's never coming back though. And they know it because others have figured out that lifting weights is good and it's not going to stunt your growth. You can't also, go back from that. Yeah, no one's, you can't. there's no uh, junk science on like, Hey, actually lifting is bad. If, if Nebraska figures out the next wave of physical development, kudos to them. Think those days are gone. You also can't just turn a blind eye to the Lawrence Phillipses of the world and get away with it like Tom Osborne did because Tom Osborne was God in the state of Nebraska. And now also everybody recruits nationally. Mm -hmm. So a little bit different. Another quick story on the Nebraska pity party. One thing that's unique about Nebraska, if you're a news publication in the state, you cover Nebraska home games. They credential everyone. That's what I would do on fall Saturdays while I was there. I'd hop on I-80 East, I'd drive two hours, I'd write about the random walk-on from Central Nebraska who may or may not get into the game, and then I would pray that their SID would actually let me talk to him afterwards. Usually that wouldn't work out. In the press box, you'd have this announcement in the beginning of games when you're eating your cinnamon rolls and chili. I don't know why they do it, they do it, it just kind of works, I don't know, whatever, try it before you knock it. Excuse me, what? Cinnamon rolls and chili. It's a real thing that they do there. It's like a late November tradition, and it's usually for an 11 a.m. game. Yeah, I don't know. It's not my favorite thing in the world, but I've had worse things. And I was kind of like, ah, you know what? This isn't that bad. I could do this. Whatever. People swear by it. Anyways, in the press box, you'd have this announcement in the beginning of games where they'd go through all the typical press box rules, whatever, and then they'd always say, no table pounding. Well, because it's Nebraska, you'd have all these former players and boosters in the top row of the press box. And usually within, I don't know, like five minutes of the game, a guy on the opposing team would break off like a 15-yard run. And don't you know it, those tables would get pounded. <laughs> <laughs> it was great. I would laugh every single time. And I'd always laugh when Nebraska would allow an eight-yard run. And then you'd hear from the back row one of these old-timers who'd say, now what is this? <laughs> and I'd think to myself, Surely this person behind me who's making this comment has seen Nebraska allow an eight-yard run before. This can't be the first time. And then I'd do this debate in my brain where I'd be like, well, you know, then again, for about like 30 years, this guy might not have seen very much of that. So I should probably just give this guy a break and let him pound the table and, and be really upset that Nebraska can't hold teams to like 15 yards rushing. Yeah, if you need a uh, get-back coach for your media row, your fan base is down bad. <laughs> They do. They really do. One last thing, and I know I've talked a lot in Nebraska. One last thing, though. Besides the fact that Scott Frost was supposed to be the Messiah and he's like 
12 and 20 now and his best players continue to transfer every single year, which is, that's really sad in itself. When I would cover Nebraska games, I would drive back on the highway and I'd turn on the radio and there was this call and reaction show. And I'm sure a lot of places have stuff like this. It was called Big Red Reaction. And the running joke was that it was called Big, Big Red Overreaction because the calls that would come into this, oh my goodness. Nebraska fans are a very nice bunch. They are. Nebraska nice is real. I'll say that to anyone. And I don't think they'd ever get a coach fired before he started like Tennessee did. They're not that savage. But man, the people that you'd listen to, that was the closest thing that I think you could ever get to like fine bomb Monday after an Alabama loss. I'm not saying it was quite on that level. Not saying that. But it wasn't as far off as you would probably think. Yet, Nebraska and Tennessee fans do the exact same thing. Saturday night is complete depression. Sunday is more depression. Monday is on to the next one. Tuesday is we figured it out. Wednesday is we might have a shot. Thursday is how much do you think we should be favored by? Fridays are the 90s are back. That is what makes college football great. The cycle just repeats itself. And I feel bad for that because that's not healthy in the long run, but it's there. Washington. Real quick, all you need to know about Nebraska fans is these guys absolutely lost it to go three and five. They begged to go, to go three and five. Literally, the rest of the Big Ten was like, ah, we're good with none of this football stuff. And they were like, buddy, we're going to start our own conference. We need to go three and five. I'm telling you, they <laughs> care. And people gave them a lot of crap. And they didn't give Ohio State crap because Ohio State actually wins football games. So Nebraska instead took all of the beating. But it's like, yes, they care. This is still everything trust me when i say that washington might be a bit of a surprise i almost went with arkansas here but i love sam Pittman so much that pity doesn't really apply right now i didn't feel like that was the appropriate emotion the common denominator that i have for the pity party do your fans care washington fans absolutely care they'll get seventy thousand fans on a given saturday even though that stadium is in seattle a major city that has a lot to do. Husky Stadium is absolutely on my college football bucket list. Extremely passionate fan base on social media as well. They had what I thought was a really good situation in the 2010s with Chris Peterson. They had really struggled to keep a quality coach, to get and keep a quality coach. They had the split national title in 1990, and then since 1992, no Washington coach has been there for more than six years. That's it. Peterson was supposed to be that guy. Probably one of like the six or seven best coaches in the sport, depending on where you look. Gets them the playoff berth in 2016. Actually played Alabama all right, and that game got a little bit more lopsided down the stretch. That's the Pac-12's last playoff berth, of course. Peterson had a stretch in there where he was 32-9. and nine. The guy went to three consecutive New Year's Six Bowls, which I feel like not a lot of people really gave credit to because he lost them. You've got a guy, though, if you're a Washington fan, you've got a head coach who's 55 years old. And even though 2019 was rough for him and he took a step back, you still think, hey, this guy could be like what Don James was for us in the 20th century. Chris Peterson could be that for us in the 21st century. We should probably at least get like a decade out of him, maybe, maybe 12, 13, 14 years, something like that. You know, this guy's dad grew up a diehard Washington fan. He loves it out there. He's recruiting well. He isn't a completely awful human being like Rick Neuheisel was when he was a head coach. As I always say, if you're looking for a good summer reading, summer reading book, something like that related to college football, be able to just kind of hang out at the beach, 
Go read Scoreboard Baby. I cannot recommend it enough. You'll see exactly why Rick Neuheisel was the worst for some of the stuff that he did in his four years at Washington, but that's beside the point. Peterson, though, after 2019, of course, stuns everyone and announces that he's stepping down. That feeling as a fan sucks. When you know how rough those times have been, and suddenly you feel like you've got your best coach in three decades and the rug is pulled out from under you. Not because of some recruiting violations or some self-inflicted thing, but you get your best coach there in a long time. And he's like, eh, six years? No, I'm good. I'd rather spend some time with my family. You see that window close right before your eyes. I wish the best for Jimmy Lake. I really, really do. But Peterson was a heck of a coach and a really good recruiter. That class that they had went from number 16 to number 36 in Lake's first full cycle. I don't think he's going to recruit at the level that Chris Peterson did. And I know that they're really excited for Brock Heward's son. He's the five-star 2021 quarterback who just enrolled there. But man, it's rough. And Washington has been getting all these Pac-12 jokes, and they're kind of lumped into that group, even though we should probably direct more of that to USC and UCLA. Because those Washington fans, they actually care. They're not really like peak Pac-12 in the 2010s. I just always find myself feeling a little bit bad for Washington fans, especially when they suffer that second loss. Will, is that a, a fair fan base to be um, sympathetic towards? Well, <clears throat> the thing that's crazy is the Chris Peterson thing, right? I mean, he was at Boise forever. Everybody tried to get him out of there. I mean, yeah. every, every year, and he was so committed to Boise, so committed, it was just, don't even knock on my door. And he left and he went to Washington, and this was like this huge upset. And it was like, oh my gosh, they got this guy. He comes in, makes the playoff, like you say, he was recruiting. He was, you know, he was putting together good teams, like, that were fun to watch. And then, yeah, like you said, he just stepped down, and it's like, it almost felt like the battle was already won by making him leave Boise. And then he just kind of left, and... and one thing that's unfortunate, not really related to anything, but funny, as, I, as you were talking, I was Googling Washington football, and I just realized that they've now had their identity stolen by the Washington football team, and they're impossible to Google. So now, I'm even mm. more pitiful for them. Poor Huskies, <laughs> man. That's brutal. That stadium's so cool, though. I love Husky Stadium. Just the, if I, when the, the college football video game comes back, that would be like the team I'd want to start a dynasty with, just because the stadium is so cool from the outset. Wisconsin. I think modern-day Nebraska is like Fat Elvis. I think modern-day Wisconsin is like Charlie Brown. Charlie Brown has a nice life. You know, he, I, he really does. He's got uninvolved parents. He's got a good group of friends. He's well-liked. He's got a great dog named Snoopy, of course. Woodstock's all right, too, but uh, kind of whatever. And then there's Lucy. You know every fall, at least once, Charlie is going to He's going to do whatever he can. He's going to try and kick that football. And you know, without fail, no matter what Lucy says, she's pulling that football. And she's going to watch Charlie embarrass himself for the billionth time in a row. That is Wisconsin football. Each fall, Wisconsin finds a new way to look totally powerless on at least one occasion. But you know, without fail, the embarrassing moment is coming. Their fans know it too, and it's torture. 2019, Illinois beats previously unbeaten number six Wisconsin. 2018, BYU goes into number six Wisconsin and wins. 2014, Northwestern beats Wisconsin. It feels like Northwestern beats Wisconsin at least once every fall, and it's 11 a.m., like 11 a.m. Central Time, Ryan Field. They've got the grass up to their knees, and it's a game that everybody just sleeps to, and it's 
sleep through, it's like 17 to 13. That, that's Wisconsin football. Since 1998, Wisconsin has finished with double-digit wins 12 times. They finished in the top 15 on 10 occasions, yet they haven't played for a national championship. Since 2013, they're 0-6 against Ohio State. They haven't won a conference title since 2012, which that was the year Ohio State went undefeated, but they were ineligible for the postseason year one with Urban. And then immediately after that conference title that Wisconsin won in 2012, Brett Bielema leaves Wisconsin for Arkansas. Why? Because Wisconsin was too cheap with its assistance. That is a massive, massive kick to the nuts if you're a Wisconsin fan. And then they had the rotating coaches where they just couldn't, it felt like everybody was leaving and the Gary Anderson mess and all that stuff. It was really rough there for a little bit. Some would argue that Wisconsin has what every program who doesn't spend crazy money should aspire to get and be satisfied with. They've got a cool, unique in-stadium atmosphere. If you've never experienced jump around, get up to Madison when it's like not 20 degrees. And depending on where you're sitting, you might wonder if 80,000 jumping people is going to be the way that you die. And it might happen. Who knows? That stadium's really old. Wisconsin, though, wins a ton of games, and they're always in the hunt for a New Year's Six Bowl bird. But talk to Wisconsin fans, and you'll realize that slowly they've sort of stopped being the optimistic fan base who just appreciates what they have. They know their ceiling because they basically spent the last two decades hitting their head against it. And Paul Christ, even though he's undoubtedly top 15 coach in college football, he's never going to lead Wisconsin to a national championship. It's not happening because it's a conservative offense and there are only so many blue chip recruits who want to spend their fall playing football in Madison. I remember driving to Madison to cover Michigan-Wisconsin 2017. That game was mid-November. Of course, it snowed on my way up there, and there was this nasty wind. And you're reminded, you're like, oh, this is why Wisconsin will never sign a top 10 recruiting class. It's not happening in my lifetime. I'll etch that in stone. And thus, that's why Wisconsin is never going to win a title, and Lucy will always pull the football at the worst possible time. Will, you got any Wisconsin thoughts? No, it's just, I mean, they, it is kind of sad, like you said, because they're so hard capped. And that's why, like, kind of we as SEC fans don't really appreciate how lucky we are sometimes that even if you are, you know, a Tennessee or a Georgia fan, your administration is committed over and over and over again to doing what it takes to win. Now, you get right there sometimes, and sometimes it's disappointing. But like you said with Wisconsin, their fan base, their coaching staff, every part of what they do and what they love wants to win so badly. But it's literally a spending thing, and they just can't really compete or recruit with Ohio State. And it makes you know the situation that Michigan's in even funnier because they have the same similar finances to Ohio State and similar pull, and they they're terrible. But if you gave if you gave you know Michigan Wisconsin's everything but money, they would be a power. So that's tough. But I, I I respect everything they've done. You know, winning with what they have, and and like you said, it's it's hard to say they're a piece or they're they're really anything away because I feel like they're at one hundred and ten percent of what they could be. I agree with you, and I think that's a tough thing to to prepare for every single fall to be that close because yeah, you have the occasional seasons where you can go to an orange bowl and, and, and you win a new year six bowl and you feel, you feel decent. And then you're reminded, you're like, we're still so far away though from winning a national championship, but we kind of trick ourselves into maybe thinking we're at that point, even though you're kind of not. And I think there is definitely a lot of pain in that. And it's not quite college football purgatory, but there's, there's something for it, and Wisconsin is definitely in whatever zone that is. The friend Georgia. zone of college football. <laughs> the friend zone of college football. I like that. That's really good, Will. 
Georgia, you knew it was ending here. Unlike Wisconsin, Georgia obviously does have that recruiting talent and they don't theoretically have a ceiling because talent, coaches, facilities, all of those things, they're, they're never lacking. But like Wisconsin, Lucy always pulls the football that one time. It might not necessarily be like to the team of Northwestern's caliber. I, I know 2019 South Carolina, but really Georgia hasn't been that under Kirby Smart. And it obviously, you know, still gets the football pulled at the worst possible time. It's just in different moments. Like there's properly executing a cover two with the national title game on the line or like watching one of the top quarterback recruits of the 21st century come into the game, not attempt to pass, but then try to run for a first down on a fake punt with a playoff berth on the line. Or there's also like realizing that catching a pass well short of the goal line, inbounds without any timeouts in the SEC championship, probably not the best strategy to get off a last second play. As someone who doesn't actively root for any specific team, yes, I've seen these things happen, and I thought to myself, they're there, Georgia fans. One day, it'll happen. And I think part of this pity stems from my, my Cubs fandom. When I grew up watching those humiliating ways to lose and then getting reminded every single time about the championship drought, it turned me into a person who didn't want to bust out laughing when I saw someone else experience that. Cubs fans, they had 1908. Georgia fans, 1980. Some similarities there as well. And by the way, you would need to be 41 years old to have seen 1980, and you probably would need to be like 46, 47 to have any sort of memories of it, and then probably age 50 to have processed what a national championship actually was. I have a few Georgia fan friends in my life at this point. My wife's boss, who I've been having Tuesday burgers with for the last four years, he was a a mid-80s Georgia grad who I think was in school for like a year of Herschel or he just missed it. It was really close, but he definitely wasn't there for 80 national championship. And even he knows way more pain than happiness. I feel pre-pity for Georgia this year especially because if it doesn't happen this year, it'll be so devastating, way more than usual. In 2016 with the Cubs, I told myself going into that year for the second time in my life, 2008 was the other time, this needs to happen now. Really, this all needs to happen right now. With the way that they had, you know, Baez and Bryant and Schwarber on the rookie deals and, and Rizzo and Arietta, they had them for super cheap for how good they were. And, and then Lester is on the tail end of his prime, all these things. I told myself repeatedly, this has to happen. And if it doesn't, I don't know, man. Like, <laughs> Maybe I just take a break on being a sports fan and like I, I put my energy into things that don't put me through hell. If there are Georgia fans approaching this year like that, it wouldn't surprise me. The difference though with Georgia is obviously even if it doesn't happen this year, it's not like a professional sports team where you, you look at the contracts and you realize that there are only so many cracks that you're going to be able to get. And that's perhaps why Georgia pain has become so unique. And Will, correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think there's a real fair comparison for Georgia Payne. Is that right? I'm trying to think across all sports. I mean, you could probably compare it to what the Eagles went through before 2017. But even then... You, it's cyclical, though. Like, you yeah. have years where you know you're, you're not going to be competing for a playoff berth or anything like that. And you know the way contracts work out. These things run their course. And with Georgia, it doesn't end. 
And instead, it's immediately right back there. You know, we talk about the cycle with Nebraska and Tennessee fans about, you know, Sunday is depression and Monday, Monday is, all right, we, you know, we're moving on to the next one. That just begins right away. So if you go back to 1981, last 40 years, 40 seasons, Georgia finished as the top seven team 13 times. Two title appearances, of course, and two losses by one score. Everyone who has appeared in the top five of the 247 Sports Talent Composite Rankings, which has been tracked since 2015, all of those teams have won at least one national title since 2005, except for Georgia. Yes, I feel pity for Georgia fans, and yes, I have already thought about what I'll text my Georgia friends if, if and when the national title dream dies a painful death again in 2021. So to recap, Tennessee, Nebraska, Washington, Wisconsin, Georgia. Will, which fan bases did I not pity enough? Um, yeah, no, I, I like your criteria a lot. I don't really think there's a ton that we're missing because, like you said, like a lot of those fan bases, it's really just like you do want them to succeed because you feel like they deserve it a little bit. Um, yeah, no, I, I, that's, that's about all I've got. I mean, you could always go back to the teams that had success a long time ago, but... They don't really, like, Nebraska's kind of the only one that still feels that every day. A lot of those teams that were big way back in the day, like almost like a Michigan State, for instance, is just like, all right, here's what we are. You know what I'm saying? So, yeah, I, I love that top five. Michigan State would have been an interesting one without the yeah, I don't uh, feel the sexual assault. Yeah. yeah, hate to be that, that, that guy, but nah. That one's pretty tough when you see some of the stuff that D'Antonio hit with Title IX and all that stuff. You're just like, okay, so... They sold their soul to the devil. Not the best look. All right. Let's go to my interview with the Athletics' Jeff Duncan. Uh, Jeff, as you'll hear in the interview, like I said, he, he's not one of those recruiting experts who's hopping on message boards and stuff like that to find out the latest on Arch Manning. He's known the Manning family for a bit, which sort of explains why his story, um, the courting of Arch Manning, was really the first of its kind when everyone was has been trying to get a piece of this kid. And I wanted to have him on before Arch visits SEC schools, which will be happening this weekend at Alabama and then Georgia the weekend after that. So yes, I can honestly say I didn't think I'd do like a 35 to 40 minute interview talking about a kid who just finished his sophomore year of high school. But anybody that's been paying attention to this whole thing will tell you that this might end up being the most competitive recruiting battle of the last decade or so. I was trying to think of a comp because the Manning name is so massive. I don't know if there's really a fair comp. And I, I'm I'm not sure that he's going to be ranked high higher than Trevor Lawrence, Justin Fields, Vince Young, Terrell Pryor. But I think this recruitment, because of the Manning name in itself, is going to just have a different kind of buzz. So here is Jeff Duncan. I'm now excited to be joined by a very special guest. It is the Athletics' Jeff Duncan. Jeff recently wrote a piece for The Athletic called The Courting of Arch Manning, wherein the nephew of Peyton and Eli said that he's wide, wide open with his recruitment. Jeff, th this might be a little bit of inside baseball here, but I want to start with the access part of this story because it it's no secret that Arch has been protected from all the media hoopla. He's restricted on social media. His coach at Newman is what you call the gatekeeper of his recruiting, which led to him getting a new phone to handle all the demands that go with that. And oh, by the way, Arch just finished his sophomore year of high school 
And you can already make the case that he's probably the most universally known recruit of the last decade, or at least one of them. So paint the picture here. How are you able to spend a little bit of time seeing him in person for this story? Well, it's not easy. As you said, the Mannings are very guarded as a family, going all the way up to you know the grandparents, Archie and Olivia. They were that way with their three sons, Cooper, Eli, and Peyton. Very tight-knit family. I've had people say the Mannings are more of a clan than a family, and I mean they mean that as a compliment. They're very close. So uh, I think it helps in that I've known the family throughout my tenure here in New Orleans. It's now over 20 years. Uh, I live in the same uptown neighborhood as all the Mannings and uh, live right down, actually right down the street from Cooper and Ellen. So I've known them for years uh, personally and socially and uh, have heard about and had heard about Arch from an early age. I started hearing stories from uh, people in very similar social circles whose kids were in Little League and uh, playing in youth sports in the uptown neighborhood. There's a, a league called the Carrollton Little League and started hearing these legendary tales of Arch Manning either on the soccer field or lacrosse or Little League baseball at shortstop or basketball. He was just that kid, right, that we all had in our in our leagues that was just more athletic and more advanced than everybody else. So you already started hearing these stories early on, and Ellen and Cooper would talk to me about them. So that groundwork was laid over time, and I think they are very media savvy and have been around media their whole lives, especially, uh, you know, Cooper, Eli, and Peyton, and they know what is coming. So I think they have a, uh, a great sense of how to deal with it and manage it and understand uh, someone like myself who they trust and have worked with over the years. Uh, can, can, they can use that to get their story out, I guess, uh, and only tell it once as opposed to telling it maybe um, multiple times. So I think that certainly worked uh, to my advantage. I want to get into all the, the recruitment stuff and the time that you were able to, to spend with him. But, you know, you talk about having that background with the family and hearing some of these tales of him when he's younger. Is there one story specifically that stands out that you heard about maybe a while ago before he became such a nationally known recruit that just kind of made you pause and think, oh, you know what, this this might be legit. This kid's probably going to be something in a few years. I don't think there was one story. I think it was multiple stories from different parents whose kids all played different sports. And each time you would talk to them, Arch was the best player in the league at whatever sport it was. So that started to stand out to me. Oh, this kid is a rare athlete. And obviously he's got the genes. And um, you knew at some point that he was going to start playing football. And he didn't start playing football until I think he got to about middle school at, at Newman. Uh, but you knew eventually that probably would translate to the football field, especially with his background. Uh, so I, I would have conversations with Cooper as a journalist, of course. You, you can appreciate this. Uh, a story you know is going to end up being big, right? You know Arch Manning just by virtue of his name. I mean, he's named after his grandfather, who was the number two pick in the NFL draft and, and a Hall, Saints Hall of Famer. Um, you know what's coming, 
but you also I also had to walk the, the tightrope of being personally close to the family and not wanting to be seen as exploitive of their son, who they are very protective of. So it was a very difficult, uh, sensitive uh, negotiation, if you will, a relationship of explaining to Cooper and Ellen, hey, I don't want to be the first one to write your son's story and expose him too soon to this uh, onslaught of media, but we know it's coming, and if somebody you want to handpick to do these things, uh, certainly I would like to be that because he's right here in my backyard, and I can tell it probably better than anybody, and I'm aware of the, the, the family dynamic, the Manning's family. So uh, as you, you can probably relate to that. It was a, It's not an easy um, back and forth in your mind of how to approach that. You don't want to get beat on it, but you also don't want to be the one, the ogre, uh, who's a vulture on, on uh, a kid who's just trying to find his way uh, in the middle school ranks. So we agreed, basically, the first story I ever did on Arch was his freshman year when he was on the varsity, and we held off as long as we could till the end of his freshman year when other national outlets started coming in to do a story on him, and the floodgates were clearly opening, and, and that's when we finally kind of the Mannings kind of relented and, and gave me open open reign on him. It's a very unique position to be in. And maybe those in the outside world who just look at the Adam Schefters and, and they think people like that, or, you know, the, the Woges of the world, they think that people like that are just going to break news all the time and those people are connected everywhere. Having that special dynamic with a family to where you feel like you can reach out to them and, and ask them stuff on the record, off the record, and with a family as well known as the Mannings. It's unlike probably anything you'll ever experience. And I, even though, you know, we in the business have relationships like that with certain specific people, having it with the Mannings is obviously entirely different. So when you're able to watch Arch and you're, you know, you're, you're talking to, to Cooper, you know, you're talking to Archie, who, whoever is, is kind of there with you, and you kind of see him physically, how different is it now compared to maybe what you have experienced kind of growing up in some of the same social circles as the family? When you look at him now, are you looking at him thinking this is the look of a, a true bona fide five-star prospect as opposed to what was probably hard to get out of your head a few years ago where he very much looked like a kid and physically wasn't necessarily on those levels just yet? No, that's a great question. And it's, it's very true. He is certainly blossomed in the last 12 months. Uh, he's gotten into weight training with a personal trainer and um, has filled out on his frame. I mean, he's grown probably close to four inches here in the last, I'd say, 18 months. And that's about when Cooper said he, he kind of hit his growth sport as well. Uh, but now you can kind of see the physical uh, aspect of his game catching up with the mental. And what always struck me the most about him were the intangibles, and the, the mental side of his game being so advanced for someone so young. I mean, he's very poised on the field, very quick to, with his decision-making. So all the things you would expect from a Manning at quarterback he had, but he was still, like, like you said, still kind of gangly, filling into his frame, was athletic. But now he's starting to kind of be defined and uh, growing into his body. And you can just see, I mean, he's going to be, I don't want to say he's a can't-miss prospect because that would be dangerous and maybe unfair to him, but 
it's very hard to find much fault in his game because he's so advanced. He's had so much of a head start on other people in his class. Uh, he's just, um, I think his grandfather on his, his maternal grandfather said at best he's been programmed to play quarterback and he's been going to the Manning passing Academy since he was in the sixth grade and was throwing routes to AJ Brown and DK Metcalf at the same time. You know, I mean, what other players are getting exposed to that kind of, um, you know, training uh, at such a high level. Uh, so it didn't surprise me he was so advanced and now he's taking it to another level with the physical part of it. You set the scene for the story that you wrote with the LSU part of it. And, and obviously with you being based in, in that area, you know, in the state, that that's your wheelhouse. Arch seemed blown away by Joe Brady. And you sort of connect the dots in the story by referencing the importance of the, the Jake Pete's hire as LSU's new offensive coordinator and how Brady signed off on it, obviously their connection with the Panthers. When that hire was made, how much do you think Arch was a factor in Ed Ogeron's decision process to hire Pete's and to not look outside of the Joe Brady coaching tree? Well, I think it definitely had some influence, but I think more than just the Joe Brady connection, it was finding somebody like Joe Brady. I think Ed Ogeron realized the error of his ways in that hire and, and Scott Linehan and now with Steve Insminger retiring, I think he realized I need to find another Joe Brady type. And there was one right there. And I know that they made calls to Joe Brady and got recommendations on Jake Peets and DJ Mangus. So it made a lot of sense, right? If you, if you're going to try and find the next guy, you might as well call him and see who he recommends. And of course he's right there on the same staff, but I don't think it was uh, just coincidence either. I, I think they definitely, we're thinking this would be the kind of guy that could get a player like Arch Manning. Uh, he comes right from the same tree. And um, I, I guarantee you that those conversations were made somewhere behind closed doors. The LSU part of this is fascinating to me because, as you point out, Peyton and Eli didn't really even have LSU as a finalist. Eli went on the, the, the visits to LSU, but nothing ever really materialized out of that. And then with the exception of Odell Beckham and Ronnie Vincent, there really is no Newman to LSU pipeline. Obviously, LSU would like to change that, and it looks like they're changing that with some of the recruits they have signed in the 2022 class as well. But or, or not signed, but verbally committed to. But but the difference now, I'd argue, is that 21st century LSU is just on a totally different level. You have the quarterback and offense factor, obviously, with Joe Burrow, 2019 team. So much fun and what they meant in the state, which was when Arch was a true freshman. And obviously, Death Valley at night, it's won over many a blue-chip recruit. And it's different when you're talking about that in the 21st century versus, obviously, when Eli and and Peyton were, were coming through the ranks at the recruiting level. I think if you're an LSU fan worried that Peyton and Eli weren't interested in LSU, it's fair to say that that really shouldn't have any bearing on Arch's decision based on some of the stuff that's already out there, right? No, I think it's a good point. I mean, I think LSU has done a tremendous job of recruiting Arch so far. I've said this before. If they do not get Arch Manning, it's not because they didn't recruit him well or didn't do something right in recruiting him. It's just going to be because he found someone else that he, he happens to like better. And I know he's very high on LSU. He likes Coach Peets and, 
and the offensive system is going to be interesting to see how it develops this year. I know he's going to be watching closely. But getting his teammates there, it's more than just his teammates, too. Uh, they're a very tight-knit group, uh, this this kind of class of juniors and seniors, the upperclassmen at Newman. Uh, they they do a lot of stuff together off the field, go uh, fishing trips, uh, hunting trips, uh, spend, the, spend the night at each other's houses, and, and Bo Bordelon, uh, and A.J. Johnson both are very close to, to Arch, as is Will Arnold, the, the, the tight end that's also in Arch's class. So it's not just getting teammates, it's getting his, some of his best friends. And I think that definitely will help LSU in this pursuit of Manning, but it's not going to dictate it because Arch Manning obviously has got, I think, his eye towards uh, another level, even above college. And I know that's crazy to say he's not even started his junior year, but uh, that's the forward thinking that they have. And I think he's just trying to get his, his – he wants to get as prepared as he can to be successful in college and then potentially have a pro career. And that, I think, ultimately will dictate uh, where he's going to go to college. But having said that, when you look at his list of schools, that he's still down to 10 or 12 schools, it's hard to find any of them in there that don't have – uh, attractive offenses, kind of advanced offenses with quarterbacks that have come out that have been prepared. Uh, most of the coaches are offensive-minded coaches. So I really think those things will take care of themselves for him. And then it's going to come down to what's his comfort level with the coach, what the personality fits, the campuses, uh, the college life there. I mean, the Mannings are doing all of that research and due diligence to make sure that this decision uh, is the right one for him because they they've said over and over, uh, and this goes back to the Peyton Manning uh, era. Uh, once you make the decision, there's no turning back. In other words, you're not going to flip flop. You won't see Arch Manning uh, in the transfer portal. Uh, that's just not going to happen. He he's going to go where he's going to go and and stick it out the whole time. So they want to make sure they make the, the right call the first time. In your piece, Rick Cleveland, the former Clarion Ledger columnist, had this quote where he said, there will be a meltdown if Ole Miss doesn't get him. And I get it. You know, Ole Miss got Archie, Ole Miss got Eli, and people forget they got Cooper too. Nobody really brings that up. But not getting Peyton still haunts them. And we know that the Mannings love Oxford and they love the Grove because probably unless you're somebody who bleeds maroon, you should love Oxford. I don't know. That's just my opinion. But the way that Arch talks about his recruitment, at least now, if I'm an Ole Miss fan selling myself on the legacy thing, I think that'd be foolish. Did you get the sense that Kiffin's offense and what he's going to be able to do with that and what it looks like maybe in year two as well and the longevity that he has there, do you think that that could play a bigger role in the recruitment than any of this legacy stuff? I think it will help Ole Miss. There's no doubt about it. I think the offensive system that is proven, right? I mean, in one year he's already uh, – Lane Kiffin has already turned around the fortunes of Ole Miss and, and taken it to a, another level offensively. What quarterback wouldn't want to pay, play in that system? And the familiarity with Ole Miss and Oxford uh, I think certainly helps. Uh, the, the problem I think Ole Miss is going to have in, in, in obtaining his services is – just how successful can they be? Uh, can they win a national championship? Uh, can they attract other top recruits there uh, to, to take it to a level where they can be competitive in the SEC West with the, with the Alabamas and the LSUs of the world? I think that 
how I think this next year uh, is going to be huge for all of these schools like Ole Miss, like Texas with Steve Sarkeesian, uh, obviously LSU with Pete in their first season. They're going to be evaluated uh, by the Manning family and by Arch and how successful they are. And I think it's critical for Ole Miss to show progress and for that offense to kind of take another step, uh, maybe to create some momentum that, that can help them overcome some of the other factors that they might be behind on. I'm glad you brought that up because I, I'm very interested in now what some of these year one coaches involved in, in the recruitment are going to be able to do where everybody's now after seeing the visit to Texas talking about Sarkeesian and what, what could Sark do in year one. And that's something that we know that Arch is going to be locked in on. And then with Tennessee, if it's going to happen, it feels like a bit of a long shot, as you mentioned in the story. But one of the things that, that has to be working in Tennessee's favor is Josh Heupel's offense looks really good in year one. It doesn't seem like Tennessee will have a chance if it doesn't look like it's at least on that level. And that's not to say it has to be all of a sudden you know, top five passing offense in the country, but you have to be able to show those signs. This seems like a kid who's going to be really locked into college football this year and someone who uh, we know the visits are probably going to come in bunches in the fall as well. And he's going to make his rounds to a lot of these different games. But if you were telling someone, hey, what do you think is the biggest factor in his recruitment? it kind of feels like the starting point is having that offense that can develop NFL talent and can have some some major success at the college level, whereas I think a lot of other quarterbacks in that spot wouldn't necessarily be looking at that. But do you feel like that factor is kind of the, at the end of the day, the school that he picks is going to have that in mind? Yes, I think that and, and the preparation uh, that would go into that of developing him. I know that the Mannings have already use their NFL uh, networking contacts to talk to personnel directors in the NFL and offense coordinators to get kind of scouting reports on all these coaches and not only their offensive systems, but also how well prepared did the quarterbacks that came out of their systems, uh, how well were prepared were they for the next level? So I'm sure they're talking to people that uh, know about Deshaun Watson when he came out of Clemson and Trevor Lawrence uh, as he came out to find out just how advanced they were and prepared for the next level. That's the the, the kind of um, follow-through that they're making, how thorough they are in preparing. So that's going to be a key part. And then the other part I, I think is critically important we haven't talked about is I think they want some stability at the head coaching level. And, and so I think mm -hmm. that gives a, an advantage to, say, Dabo Swinney or Nick Saban, of course. I mean, there are some people in Alabama that have told me that that wasn't by accident that, Nick Saban just announced that contract extension right here before his, his visit coming up with Arch Manning. I mean, um, I think stability at the head coach spot. Now, you know, the coordinator level, you're going to have coordinators come and go. I don't think that's as important uh, to the Mannings as it is at, at the top level. And I think that gives certain schools an advantage over others that are just kind of getting started with a, a new regime. The visit schedule uh, that, that Cooper talked about, it, it looks bananas, and we've already seen the, the early schedule for it so far. Clemson, Texas, SMU, Alabama, Georgia, all in the month of June, and then hoping 
maybe you can pencil in Notre Dame, Ohio State, Stanford, USC, uh, who knows, UNC, Duke, Virginia, Tennessee. There, There are a lot of schools that would love nothing more than to be able to host Arch Manning. There's no doubt about that. After your visit and being able to kind of talk to people around the situation, who was the team that you came away from thinking, oh, they have way more of a shot than maybe I was giving credit for? I guess I would say Virginia. Uh, you know, the fact that his mm-hmm. mother went to school there and his older sister is enrolling there this fall, and uh, it's kind of a neutral choice. And, and I don't think that should be discounted. I mean, I think the Mannings uh, are hyper aware of how the recruiting situation went down with uh, both Peyton, uh, you know, especially Peyton, when he did not go to Ole Miss and the backlash that caused Archie and Olivia. I think everyone's going to be sensitive to if Arch does not pick an SEC school, or if he does, I mean, there's going to be obviously angered fans from the other side. If he if he doesn't go to Ole Miss or LSU, are they willing for him to go to Alabama, one of their arch those schools' arch rivals? It's going to make it doubly tough, right, for those fan bases. So maybe the thinking is let's go somewhere neutral that, yes, he didn't pick your school, but at least he's not going within your division uh, of the same conference and going to be beating you every year on the field. Maybe it's safe play to go to Virginia. And in some ways, I feel like Arch is such a sure thing. Uh, It kind of reminds me a little bit of, say, a one-and-done basketball recruit. You know, it it almost Mm -hmm. doesn't matter where they go, right? Anthony Edwards went to Georgia, not a traditional school, still went number one. Uh, Jalen Brown goes to Cal Berkeley, goes number one. I mean, that's kind of been proven at the NBA level that it, it doesn't matter that much. I kind of feel like Arch is so good and so prepared and is going to have such good coaching. Even if he went to a school like Virginia, uh, he'd still uh, get good enough coaching, good enough development that that he would make it to where he wants to go eventually. You You wrote as well about the Matt Luke part of this. And I think that there are a lot of people at Ole Miss that look at the Matt Luke situation and that's the era that they'd like to be able to forget just because of the cloud that that hung over the program. But at the same time, the relationship that was established with Arch and how that could potentially benefit Georgia now where Matt Luke is as the offensive line coach is a, a fascinating little wrinkle that who knows if that's going to play a factor. But then when you start thinking about Kirby and the way that he's recruited five-star quarterbacks, and there's just never an, a, a really an end to this, this cycle where it doesn't matter what Georgia's quarterbacks do on the field, Kirby still gets the five-stars. And now Matt Luke is on his coaching staff and probably going to continue to get raises. He's under contract through June of 2023, by the way. And that's something that that you feel like could help Georgia. Do you think the Matt Luke factor could potentially be something down the road? Or is that something that's just kind of nice to be able to talk about now and we'll probably forget about? I think it's definitely a factor, but I don't think it's going to be a deciding factor. I think it helps Georgia in the relationship department. But ultimately, it's going to come down to those factors you mentioned, their development of other quarterbacks, um, what they have. Uh, opportunity is going to be uh, for Arch at those schools. Uh, I do think it's interesting how most of these power programs are operating in terms of recruiting these five-star quarterbacks and the cycle they use where they 
kind of recruit them every other year. And there's like a system in place where you come in and you learn for one year and then you take it over usually as a sophomore and you have two seasons of starting. And then uh, hopefully you bring in the other one when uh, your junior year, they learn behind you and then they step in. It's, it's kind of a, a pattern, right? And so I think the depth charts across the league are also going to factor in. Uh, and I know these coaches are probably trying to explain that uh, to to players like Arch Manning, that they're recruiting, that they're not going to have two of these five stars knocking heads at the same school. Uh, you're our first choice, and if you commit, uh, you'll be the guy. So I think that opportunity at Georgia also is there that would be very attractive. And also Athens. I mean, Athens is a great campus, a great school, uh, you know, yep. well-regarded. Uh, you know, it's 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 a state school, but it has a small feel to some degree in Athens. Uh, so I think those factors work out. And, and you mentioned the fall. I think that's going to be important for the family to get out and get on these school campuses on game days and, and get a feel for it and talk to some students and 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 see what the demographics are like on campus and what the uh, just the regular life away from football is like. So if the plan is for Arch to verbally commit in the spring, this really is going to be like weekly updates that we get from now until then. It sounds like he'll visit a ton of these different SEC campuses in the fall, and he's just going to be all over the place and, and doing what I think all college football recruits should do if given the opportunity is experience as many places and as many regions of the country as possible. But... When you, you were able to, to kind of like figure out all these things and you're like, all right, well, what needs to make, make the cut for this story? Was there maybe an interesting nugget about the, the recruitment, about some stuff that you learned about Arch that maybe didn't necessarily tie to it or, or just something, a nugget that didn't make the cut for the story that you found that you found interesting? Well, I think one thing that we didn't, we didn't want to go too far ahead of ourselves, but I think the fact that this football season is probably going to be nuts over here at Newman. I mean, uh, the school itself is, as I pointed out in the story is probably the elite uh, academic school in the entire state of Louisiana, certainly in New Orleans. And it's very small. It almost feels a little bit like an Ivy league campus. The football stadium's packed in between a bunch of buildings and, uh, and to think what this is going to be like in the fall. I mean, Arch is going to have at least one game on, ESPN, uh, but they're anticipating all these coaches coming in, which they couldn't do a year ago. So we might have Nick Saban riding in on a helicopter, right, landing somewhere near near the football field. I mean, the, the, the scenes that are going to play out here uh, on Friday nights at Newman with all these coaches at his game, knowing that he's going to commit next spring uh, and wanting to, to show their, their interest and support, I think it's going to be nuts. Uh, you know, I, I can't imagine what the scene's going to be like with the Mannings up in the crowd and all these high-profile head coaches on the sidelines jockeying for his attention. Uh, so I, I know that the school is preparing for that, and uh, it's going to be nuts because of the fact that this all occurred last year in a pandemic. There really wasn't any of that at the school, and I think this year it's going to be wide, wide open as far as attendance, and I imagine every game is going to be sold out because of it. Gosh, I just realized we're going to have helicopter crashes, aren't we? There's going to be Kiffin <laughs> trying to get his helicopter down, and, and Kirby's going to have it ready to go. It's, it's going to be all this, oh, gosh, what a mess that's going to be. Newman's going to have to get 
a few different helicopter landing pads. I don't even know how that works, but that's something that they're definitely going to have to to look into. Uh, Jeff, I, I want to get you on your way with a prediction and just humor us because at this stage, I, I realize it, it's an educated guess. We're talking about a 16-year-old kid and nobody should take this as, as gospel or anything like that. But Let's have some fun here and say that Arch's recruitment is like walking into the casino and you're at the roulette table. And I'll let you pick which way you want to go with this. You could either limit it to red versus black, which would be like Arch ends up at an SEC program or a non-SEC program, or you could pick a specific number, which would be like a specific school. So where exactly would you put your chips? I would say, and let me preface this, as you said, it's still way too early. He does not have a leader. He wants to see all these schools. He wants to meet the coaches. Uh, But I think he definitely likes certain schools a lot. And I think Clemson is is one of those schools, the fact that they were the first school to get the visit, uh, the fact that they are kind of that neutral choice that I mentioned earlier, uh, they are a power, obviously. I think the old school way that Dabo Swinney approaches recruiting is appealing to the Mannings. I think they like that it's, uh, you know, kind of in a, in a remote area. It's not a big, a big city campus at, at all. I just think there's a lot of factors that work out for Clemson uh, that are preventing them from being struck. There's really nothing you can say about them that isn't appealing. You know, the, the quarterback, uh, is going to be probably gone uh, to the NFL after his junior season. So that kind of opens things up for Arch. Uh, so I, I would have to put my chips on Clemson with the caveat of saying it wouldn't shock me if he went anywhere else at all. I mean, I, I would not be surprised at any of the schools I mentioned, except for maybe SMU because of, of uh, you know, their, their standing in the college ranks. And even Stanford, I think Southern Cal would surprise me just because the one thing we haven't talked about is I, I know Archie, his grandfather, is the proudest grandfather in the world and wants to be at all the games. And he's not in the greatest health. I mean, he's not in terrible health by any means. But I just think flying out to Stanford, Palo Alto, or Los Angeles uh, to watch him play in college uh, would be a hurdle for those schools. Now, if he falls in love with one of them, it, it, it could happen. But I think that's something they're going to have to – uh, you know, make up compared to these regional schools that would be much easier for the, the grandparents to get to. Jeff, this has been great. Everybody go follow Jeff on Twitter. Uh, it's at Jeff Duncan underscore. Really, really appreciate the time. And we'll, we'll do this again soon and probably uh, not related to another 16-year-old prospect. Yeah, I understand. He's not your average 16-year-old prospect. I've, I've said this to Cooper before. He's I remember the first time I approached the Mannings to, to, to do a first story on him, I, I mentioned it to Peyton, and Peyton said, let's just wait, you know, till he's a freshman in high school before we, uh, you know, we at least start trying to overexpose him. I think that was the protective uncle in him. So I understand it, but they know it comes with the territory, and certainly if anybody can handle it, it's the Mannings and, and Arch. Uh, so I appreciate the opportunity, and, yes, let's visit again in the fall. Maybe – Maybe after one of these helicopter crashes, we, we can talk again. <laughs> Why Arch Manning started a helicopter crash. We'll get Jeff Duncan for the full story on The Athletic. I'm sure he'll be all over that. Jeff, awesome, awesome stuff. Take care. Best of luck with everything you got going on, man. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it.
What's my destiny, Mom? You're gonna have to figure that out for yourself. Life is a box of chocolates, Forrest. You never know what you're gonna get. Will, a unique but relatable topic for figuring out today. Do you want to explain it to the people? Yeah, so there's obviously a new, um, The Conjuring movies movie in theaters, and um, I was talking to Brittany and I was like, hey, so like when we first started dating, we watched like all of those movies together. Do you want to go see those, this one? And she was like, I'll be honest with you, man, kind of hated those movies. I actually hate all <laughs> scary movies. And I was like, wait, really? She's like, yeah, I was just trying to impress you. I was like scared crapless the whole time, but I didn't want to be the person who was a buzzkill. And so she's like, but now that we're in a relationship, I don't got to do that anymore. And I was like, you know what? Yep. I respect that finesse on such a level, like I can't even hate it. So this topic, which I think so many people can, can relate to, is basically what what were the things that you did early in your relationship with your significant other that no longer fly? And this is probably a little bit better for the people who have been in a relationship for you know more than a year or something like that, or maybe even if it's like six months and you've seen some of those things change. But I think this is something that a lot of people deal with, but maybe don't necessarily talk about. Because when you first brought this idea up to me, I immediately thought of several ideas. <laughs> and I was like, oh yeah, this is 100% because Lauren and I have been together for almost 10 years at, at this point. And before before I start, I don't want this to come off as like, oh, my wife never lets me do anything. Lauren, as I've said many a time, treats me extremely well. I told the story about last year for my 30th birthday when those plans to go up to a Cubs game with all my buddies and stuff and, and see my family and when all that fell through because of COVID, she's like, I know what I'll do. I'll treat Connor like Dudley Dursley and I'll buy him 30 presents. And she did that. But there are definitely some examples of how things have changed. And the obvious one is watching sports that don't have to do with my job. Back when we were dating, senior year in college, and maybe this is different because we didn't live together and that's definitely part of this, I didn't have to think twice about flipping on a Bulls or a Blackhawks playoff game. Or even like maybe a year or two into the relationship, I could still get away with that. Now though, if I'm gonna watch the majority of a Cubs or a Bears game on TV, don't really watch a lot of Bulls or Blackhawks regular season stuff, I'll be honest. But if I watch like a Cubs or a Bears game on TV, that is planned well in advance. There's a, a pitch that goes into this. <laughs> and I know it because I did it this past Sunday. I'll be like, hey, so uh, you know, Lauren, Cubs have been on fire. They finally have <laughs> maximum capacity seating at Wrigley back. Cardinals are in town, games on ESPN, you know. You cool if I watch it for just, I'll watch it for just a bit on Sunday night. I'm not saying it's gotta be our whole night, but just, just for a little bit. And there are some people listening to this who are probably like, wow, you're such a beta. And to a certain extent, yeah. But it's also just being more aware that I'm not the only person who exists in my household. Because I try and think about the reverse. If Lauren said to me one day, hey, there's a, there's a four weddings marathon, and I think we should watch three hours of it. What would my reaction be? Like, uh, Let's, let's not watch three hours of this show. We don't need to do that. Lauren doesn't really care about any of my specific teams. I mean, that's just, that's reality. But obviously, you know, playoffs are a different story because when we're talking about the Cubs or the Bears or something like that, it doesn't happen on a yearly basis. 
that gets a different sort of treatment. Or if Indiana is in the NCAA tournament, we both are very dialed in for that because we both are Indiana grads and she grew up you know, a little bit more around basketball. But that's definitely one of those things. Sports, specifically those regular season games that I used to just not have to worry about being like, hey, you, you mind if we do this because we do stuff together. Will, how do you navigate this? Because you watch a lot of Pelicans regular season games. <laughs> yeah, I, um, that's actually a very interesting point. And I feel like, you know, some aspects of a relationship are kind of like collective bargaining, right? It's like you come mm. to the table, they come to the table. It's like, all right, we obviously have interests that overlap that aren't ever going to be an issue. It's like, like, I've said this before, me and Brittany love playing Xbox together. Like, we could do that every night. And then there are things where it's like, she loves reality TV, I don't. I love sports. She's cool with sports, but you're right. There are teams that you just kind of take off the table. So, like, for me, I pretty much stopped watching LSU baseball because I'm like, this isn't worth the pitch. You know what I'm saying? Right, the pitch. The pitch. And so it's like, and I've found it's almost like you have to go back. I have to go back to my journalism days and be like, hey, babe, you know, remember Drew Holiday? He was, she, he was the one who was really good in the community. He had the wife and the kid. You remember all that? Now he's on the Bucks, right? And they're in the playoffs against the Nets. And so we got to root for him because he used to be on the Pelicans. She's like, oh, yeah, let's get it. So it's like, it's like the way you package it is so important because if it's just like oh yeah I gotta I'm watching this Wizards Hornets game it's like why why are we doing this and so you got to think about it ahead of time a little bit to where it's like well you know it's why you care about anything right you got to explain why you care about what you care about and if it's compelling then you're in you know I think you're definitely on the more favorable side of that <laughs> I remember when we watched uh what was it it was the 2019 opening weekend when we were we were at Marler's place and and mm -hmm. you and Brittany came over and we got to just watch a ton of games and stuff like that and I was like oh Brittany Pretty much is a good amount of stuff here. Like this is this is a pretty favorable setup for Will to not necessarily always have to make that that same sort of pitch. But you still know exactly what I'm talking about when it's that that borderline game that's going to be a little bit a little bit tougher there. What quick thing on that? She was uh, and this is awesome into itself. It was just a very funny thing that was happening. She uh, was installing a fridge during LSU Mississippi State this year because that game was at like it was like a noon game it was like or maybe it was 2 30. it was yeah. the 3 30 cbs there we go yeah, was, yeah, yeah. So 2 30 local it was for... but it was like after i had gotten off i was working for my bookie so it was like i was starting my day and she was like hey gotta put this fridge in you said you do it yesterday or whatever and you didn't i was like you're right and i was just watching lsu give up you know 600 yards while i was just here zzz, zzz. i was like please make it stop <laughs> it's like but yeah it's, that's the thing is it's like it's hard to explain sometimes why some things matter more than other things with sports, you know, because we love it all. Sports is definitely part of it. Another thing that I have non-sports related, when we first started dating, it was the second week of December, and I'm pretty sure finals was like the very next week, and then it was winter break right after that. So we knew that we would go a couple weeks without seeing each other. When we first started dating and went on break, I think I called Lauren a total of one time one time during a 12-day stretch. We texted, don't get, don't, don't get it twisted here. I wasn't just ghosting her or anything like that. But talking on the phone, one time. And she didn't call me because she didn't want to seem like the high-maintenance girlfriend. You know, we're like at that stage, you're still figuring some things out. And I always tell her that I was grateful that she did that because I hated the idea of spending an hour on the phone every single day very early into a relationship. And she always says, I wasn't really sure this thing was going to work out because I thought you just didn't want to talk to me at all. That would never fly today. There's no way. And honestly, that's not really a Lauren thing. I like talking to my wife. If I'm out of town covering a game or something like that, we'll either text or if I'm not in the situation to talk, then we'll, we'll just text or something like that. But it's not the situation like uh, Ned in The Hangover. 
I was the keynote speaker. <laughs> but there's an expectation there. Hey, man, just don't ghost your wife. You got you to be able to, to talk to your wife on a daily basis. Will, do you have a similar situation with Brittany? Um, we're usually pretty good. I just, uh, my love language is memes. So I just be sending memes all day. And that's really how I, how I do it. You send memes to me all day too, so. They're exactly, that's how you, anyone knows how much I care about them by the volume of memes. Oh God. We got a few responses from the Facebook group uh, on this question as well. Justin Lonzak says, um, in terms of things that, again, these are things that you could do in the beginning of the relationship that just do not fly anymore with your significant other. So Justin says, clean five minutes before she arrived. Yes. Um, that, that one, you need a little bit of time. And if you're not living with your significant other, and if maybe you've been together for a couple of years or something like that, and if she comes over, I don't know, it depends on if she is one of those people who likes a tidy household. But if I was in that spot, and I remember being in that spot when we were in Nebraska, we weren't living together yet. And we were living in separate places after she moved out there. And I had to make sure I got to run the vacuum. I gotta run the vacuum. There's, there's no way that she can come over and she sees crumbs in the ground or something like that. This is, this is not a good look for me. Very relatable, Justin. Drew Page, getting into Facebook arguments. I'm not a confrontational person at all. And at the beginning of our relationship, it might've been very funny. Uh, it might've been funny every now and then, but it got to be where I was arguing with so many people that she had to step in and put her foot down and make me stop. The only argument she ever laughed about was when I got into one with the band Trapped and they blocked Oh me. my gosh, yes. This guy is a king. Have you seen their Twitter? I have not. Oh boy. So they might they might have been deactivated by now, but about for the last like about year and a half, I guess either the lead singer or one member of the band has taken over the Trapped. Like the people who sing Headstrong, Trapped, right? Oh, okay. Yeah. 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 So they're like is obviously that Screamo. Uh, no, that's like, that's a totally different kind of rock. They're, I still don't get screamo. All right, go ahead, sorry. <laughs> We'll fight about it. Anyway, so, so they were like, you know, pop rock basically. And they're like, whoever runs their Twitter account just takes everything more personally than KD. Like if you at them, right, well, you don't have Twitter, but if you, <laughs> but if you had a Twitter, you could at them right now and be like, you guys suck. I promise you, you get a paragraph back. Like they, whoever this guy is, is obviously going through something. I think he's a big like MAGA guy too. And like, he will just like fight with people about politics, about sports, about anything, bro. Yeah, get in there if you haven't, it's funny. Sounds like a very healthy, productive way to spend some time. Gosh, hard pass on that. Nick Jones, he says, I used to be able to get away with watching football all day on Saturdays. I actually still get away with that, sick brag. Um, different story though. Now I can only watch the Georgia game plus an additional game or two before my girlfriend loses interest and wants to do something else. Also living in Denver, the warm weather only lasts so long and if you spend every fall Saturday glued to the TV, then you'll miss out on a lot of hiking, camping, etc. Now we plan our Saturdays just around the Georgia game opposed to a full day of college football. Gotta find that balance. Nick, the fact that you were getting an additional game on top of the Georgia game, an additional game or two, that in itself is a massive blessing because college football games are not coming in under three and a half hours. So if I'm doing some quick <laughs> time math here, you're west, so your mountain time zone, that means games are starting at 10 a.m. Oh, wow, yeah. Man, that's 10 a.m. to five o'clock if you're watching two full games, minimum. 
that kind of leads you into dinner time. Yeah, maybe you go out that night or something like that. But any sort of Saturday activity, you can't really get away with there. You can't really get away with doing that there. It is about finding that balance. And there were a lot of points in my life when I thought all I want to do, and I'll probably still have some points like this with the NFL. I like the NFL because it allows me to be able to watch football and turn off my brain at certain points, but I can only take it in doses. I don't watch to the same extent that I used to, but. Listen, the best way to watch the Bears is to turn off your brain because if your brain's on while you watch yeah. the Bears, it's gonna be a bad time. Come on, who are we kidding? That's, that's just <laughs> flat out unhealthy. We don't do MVP. that. MVP, MVP. <laughs> Mitch Trubisky is now currently ahead of Jake Fromm on the depth chart. Anyway. People are asking about that. Anyway, there is balance. There is balance. And once you find someone in your life that's worth spending that time with, you don't really see it as much of a trade-off. Now, if that conversation was, you're not watching any Georgia football anymore, that's tougher to see a long-term future with that person. It just is, and that's gonna sound like it might mean too much, and maybe there's an argument to be made that you shouldn't break up with someone because they're not cool with whatever specific sports team you like, but college football is different in that regard, and we only get so many fall Saturdays. We really do, and if you can find a way to do both, prioritize that, and if you are in that situation, be the proactive one that plans stuff on that Saturday. Say, hey, I found a new trail for us to be able to hike. Hey, let's go try this new restaurant. Hey, let's go try this new bar. I found a new brewery that we can go to or, or something like that to do that on a Saturday so that it seems like you're putting effort into it and it, it doesn't make her feel like she's just pulling you away from what you actually wanna do. That's the key balance that you gotta find if you're in that relationship. And if you have that trust to be able to have that conversation because I'm sure that there are gonna be things that you're gonna miss and you might feel bad if you are not necessarily in that spot where you can watch a full day of college football. But there is balance and there is happiness in that balance. Good answers though. Yeah, I, I think all these. I think the, the the like your team's game plus one other game. Yeah, if you can keep that, you're you're good to go. Um, and like I'll, I'll say this too, I, I do think your team matters, right? Because it takes like it takes a lot less buy-in from a significant other to watch, you know, Georgia just house, you know, Kentucky or somebody. And I remember talking about this because whenever me and Brittany started seriously dating, it was during the like 2019 LSU season. And then also the Pelicans had just got Zion. So I was like, hey, mm -hmm. like you can either be in or out on these things. But if you want to be in, this is the time to be in. And I remember we went to LSU Florida in 2019, had like great seats. And she was like blown away. It's just like going to be an LSU fan for life. And I was like, I remember saying before that game and after that game, just remember, this isn't going to be like this. <laughs> like, I was like, this is the shit, like, for my life, that season so far sticks out. I was like, just know if you come into 2020 expecting that, you're going to be disappointed. So, yeah, I, I think that that's, that's something you got to get ahead of in terms of your teams is set the expectation. Because if you are a fan of one of those five teams we just talked about, you know, it might be harder to get your significant other to buy into a heartbreak that they're opting into, that they weren't born with, you know? Mm, that's, that's a really good point, and I think it's tough for your significant other who comes on board or maybe is at least somewhat supportive of you watching your specific team to see you go through that pain because that's one more person who says to you, why are you doing this? Let's just do something else. We don't need to watch this Tennessee game on a given Saturday when there's plenty that we could be doing that won't make you feel this awful way and we'll, we'll save 
four hours of our life. I promise, and it'll be great. But you sign up for the pain. The pain's part of it. The pain's what makes the, the good moments so great. And hopefully, your significant other is on board with that too. And there might be there might be plenty of women listening to this who have had to get their male significant others on board with this. My uh, my brother's so my brother's um, mother-in-law, who I met for the first time um, at their wedding, die-hard Kentucky fan. Like, die hard. Loves Kentucky basketball more than anything in the world and also loves Kentucky football. But, like, in a way that she had to get her significant other husband on board with that side of her. And that, that is a, a different thing to have to navigate. But, you know, I think that there are right ways to do it. And if you can find that balance, you've, you've found something very, very special and you should appreciate each and every opportunity you get to be able to exercise that balance. Some awesome, awesome interviews we have coming up here. I mean, I, we've just been recording a bunch of stuff this week. I'm so excited for some stuff that we've got coming down the pipeline. Plan is early pod next week, probably Tuesday night or Wednesday morning. Um, we're gonna have a coach on who just coached a top 25 team. His team is gonna start in the top 25, coming off a really big year. He's also got some SEC fandom roots as well. It is not an SEC head coach, but it is another head coach, and I think people will get a kick out of this interview. If you have not yet, leave us a five-star review. Like, subscribe, go subscribe to our newsletter, go subscribe to College Football Uncensored wherever you get your podcasts. Join the Facebook group, hear your name read on air, with figuring it out. Thanks, guys. Talk soon.